Well, it was last semester that um, I sent out a little memo to you through uh, email and through the e-bulletin and announcement here in chapel to give some feedback on some of the themes and ideas and topics, texts that you maybe wanted to have addressed in chapel. And uh, many of you responded to that. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. One of those particular responses really struck with me. And it was the idea of being deeply satisfied in God. What does that look like? What does that mean? And I said, we're going to do a little mini-series on that the next semester. So this week uh, and next week, we're going to have four messages that deal with that topic. Deal with it expositionally from the scriptures. Deal with it testimonially from uh, personal testimony. And we're going to talk about what it means to be deeply satisfied. I, that, that Piper video really struck me when I saw it for the first time. I said that he, he's grasping at something that we all long for and that we all want. So this morning, I'd like to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to John chapter 4, uh, digital, printed, or uh, in your brain if you got it memorized, all right? So John chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and this is a familiar text to many of you. Um, how many of you are in the Gospel of John class right now? Gospel of John. And is, is Dan Walinga instructor for that? I, I envy Dan because I love the Gospel of John. I love that Gospel. It is such a rich Gospel. I'm a bit jealous that he gets to teach it. One of the things that I really like about John is that it is so clearly laid out from beginning to end. It is purposeful. It is so clearly laid out from beginning to end. And as we know, as you get to the end of John, you have a purpose statement given right there in chapter 20, the second to last chapter of the gospel in verse 20, 30 and 31. He says this, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing, believing you might have life in his name. So it's really clear in John that the Holy Spirit's purpose is to convince the reader through the gospel account to believe in Christ. It is through belief in Christ that one has life in Christ. That's how you can sum up John. Or if you want to expand on that just a little bit, you could see it this way. John presents undeniable evidence about Jesus to lead the reader to believe unreservedly in Jesus and subsequently be completely changed by Jesus and thereby, thereby enjoy everlasting life with Jesus. Did you get that? Let me say it again. John presents undeniable evidence about Jesus to lead the reader to believe unreservedly in Jesus and subsequently be completely changed by Jesus and thereby enjoy everlasting life with Jesus. That's the Gospel of John. And so John does this by presenting in vivid detail these portraits, these little vignettes uh, of Christ. He, he presents the words and the miracles of Christ. We have the seven I am declarations. We have the seven miracles. We have a very detailed account of the last week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the restoration and recommissioning of the disciples, one of my favorite chapters in all the New Testament, John 21. But in John chapter 4, he records for us a very unusual story. It's a story about an encounter with a woman in Samaria, a Samaritan woman. That's all we know. We don't know her name. We just know she's a woman from Samaria. And one of the reasons that I believe in the inspiration of Scripture is because any Jew writing this would never put this in their account. They would never include this story 
in, in a gospel account, if, if they were making it up, if they were just fabricating the story. Because this story wouldn't make sense to the Jews. They, they hated the Samaritans. There was a deep animosity toward the Samaritans. So the very fact that we have this account is one of the ways that it testifies to the veracity of God's word. One author, John MacArthur, said this, The Samaritans were the result of the deportation of the ten northern tribes when Israel was conquered by Assyria. Remember that? 721 B.C. The Assyrians brought in others to populate the conquered territory. So they kind of took some of them away, and then they replaced some of the Assyrians with them. And then they intermingled and intermarried. And then they came to practice a faith that was a variant of the Mosaic faith. And the Israelites regarded these Samaritans as illegitimate, as heretics, as imposters in the promised land. The Samaritans set up a temple on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews, in a frenzy of patriotism, destroyed it near the end of the second century B.C. So there, there was this religious and racial and historical animosity that existed between these two groups. And we would never have this account if it was just fabricated, made up. They would never include an account of the Messiah meeting with a woman, and of all that, a Samaritan woman. Now, if you want more background to all that, you can go to 2 Kings 17. It gives the whole background of that story. But basically, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, as religious mongrels, as idolaters. And so that's kind of the backdrop of the story. Now, I want us to read the text this morning. I want to read uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 18. And then I'm going to skip a few verses and go to verses 25 through 30. So let's, why don't we stand in honor of God's word as I read John 4, 3 through 18. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? You gave a, who gave us the well and drink of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall, shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor have to come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Then go to verse 25, if you would. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
this point. His disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. You may be seated. Father, we just pray that you would open up and reveal this text to us, Lord, this account of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Lord, there's so much here. Open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You know, this story can be approached in a number of different ways. Um, I've seen this particular text used in an evangelism class as as kind of a a textbook case of how to do evangelism. And maybe you've seen it as well. And there's nothing wrong with using it that way. There are a lot of interesting approaches and techniques that Jesus uses with this woman, which are worth considering. Um, He engages the way he engages her in conversation, the way he transitions from something that is physical to something that is uh, spiritual, from the, 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 uh, the physical to the immaterial or the material to the immaterial, the way he funnels the conversation to the place where the woman actually discovers who he is and the principle that God is preparing the hearts of our encounters with people. And we, like the disciples, need to look up and see the potentiality of the harvest, the conversion of souls. And so we can learn a lot about evangelism and missions from this text. And I don't want to discount any of it. It's a great place to go if you want to learn how to evangelize well. However, this morning, I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. From the perspective of a woman desperately searching for satisfaction and coming and encountering the one person, the very one person who could meet the need and the desperation she had in her life, who could satisfy that which she was seeking. And I think if you miss that in the text, you kind of miss the heart of the story because at the heart of the story is this search for satisfaction. So kind of the idea here. Um, is to consider, consider this. It's a very simple outline. Very simple outline. I started with four points and I went to two. I, I'm learning as I go on in, in my study of Scripture to try to keep things as simple as possible. And so the first point is the, soul, the search for soul satisfaction, if I can say that correctly. And secondly, the source of soul satisfaction. The search and the source. And the key idea or analogy that Jesus builds in his conversation with this woman is the idea of thirst, right? The idea of thirst, thirsting for water. And the thirst for water in this particular encounter is a metaphor, I believe, of the thirst of the soul for satisfaction. Piper explained how we are constantly on this search looking one way and another way, trying to find something that's meaningful in our life. You know, one of the things that I challenge myself, I kind of like to stay on top of world events and geopolitics and all that. And and I find myself looking way too often at at the news feed. And what's going on in the world? What's the latest thing breaking, you know? uh, My my watch goes off breaking news, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to turn that off. You know, there's this constant distraction to find something that will kind of satisfy, satiate the need to know or the need to experience or the need for fulfillment. And so Jesus builds this idea around thirst. And we can all relate to that, right? And of course, in Israel, which is generally a dry place, to survive in that land in the first century meant that communities had to have a source of water, whether a stream 
or a river or a well. And here in the town of Sychar, which is about 115 miles north of Jerusalem, they had a well. It was an ancient well. It was Jacob's well. Jacob's well. We know from Genesis 33 that Jacob purchased a parcel of land for 100 shekels of silver, um, of 100 pieces of silver. And while the well isn't mentioned in that Genesis 33 passage, the reason Jacob likely purchased it had to do with the abundant water sources in that particular area. There were several wells or springs that then led to this particular well. It was a very deep well. 128 feet, it's been measured. Now, that's a deep well. I want you to imagine for a moment, every single day, people would have to come and draw water. We just turn on our faucets and water's there, right? We take it for granted. But they would have to come every single day with clay pots, large ones, and they would have to, to take it and they would have to put either a basket or a pot down in there very carefully, go all the way down, 128 feet, 128 feet, and then pull it up full of water, heavy, water's heavy, and then pull it out and put it in another water pot over here and then do the same thing over until they had enough to take for the day or for the next couple days. You see, they were dependent upon water. And this was a well, was a deep well. This well was right between two mountains, right on a pass between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. For those of you headed to Israel next winter, and I, I just want to encourage you, if you haven't considered that, you need to prayerfully consider that. You say, oh, it's too much money. There's no way I can. You know what? Don't, don't say it. God. Don't say it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, uh, I went to Israel way too late in my Christian experience. I wish I had gone far earlier because it would, have, it would have just opened up a world for me in my study of Scripture. So I want to encourage you to consider that and pray about that. that that'll be for another time. We'll talk about that. But, but you, you will go by this area most likely. You will see these mountains. And so Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at this well, Jacob's well, and a conversation ensues. And Jesus, knowing this woman's heart, and knowing her greatest need takes the conversation from the topic of physical water, which was so vital to their physical existence, to spiritual water, which is absolutely vital to spiritual existence, spiritual life. Because without physical water, there's no physical life. Without spiritual water, there's no spiritual life. That's the equation there. That's the the equivalency. And scriptures replete with analogies that compare water to the source of spiritual life. This isn't too far of a stretch. And so when Jesus comes and starts talking about this, it might have brought up in their minds the, the remembrances of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money? For that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And then uh, in Isaiah 41, it says, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. Jesus is the very fulfillment of that passage. And so our Lord, in a masterful way, takes the conversation from physical water, which was there to satisfy the physical thirst, to spiritual water, which was offered to satisfied spiritual thirst. So to keep things simple, we're just going to do that simple outline there, the search for soul satisfaction. Now, this woman, what was she trying to find satisfaction in? Can I just give you a couple of suggestions, maybe three? Number one, her roots, her roots. Look at verses 11 and 12. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now notice verse 12. 
You, you are not greater than, than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? She's going back to her history. She's going back to her legacy. She's saying, listen, I, I've got a legacy. Yeah, you know, you Jews think that we're kind of heretics. We're half-breeds, and, and we don't have the true religion. But you know what? We can be traced all the way back to Jacob as our father. You, you would say that your spiritual father was Jacob, and our spiritual father was Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? She's going back to her roots. You're not greater than our father, Jacob. She's mentioning her historical lineage And, you know, there are people today that try to find satisfaction and fulfillment in their roots. I remember uh, in the church that I I, I recently came from in Oregon, um, in Bend, Oregon. Bend is is on the eastern flank of the Cascade Range of the Cascade Mountains. And and it was a place, uh, Bend was was known, the, the original name of the town was Farewell Bend. Because on the Oregon Trail, they would come to this place. And it would be kind of a last stopping point along the Deschutes River. They kind of get supplies, get water, get refreshed before they head over the mountains to the Willamette Valley. And so I was told when I came, like, like the first week I was there at the church, just after my installation, some guy comes up to me and says, Pastor, I just wanted you to know that my family, my family line can be traced back to the settlers who came on the Oregon Trail to this part of central Oregon in the northwest. And we have a long history here. I said, oh, that's interesting. Wow, fascinating. But you know what he was trying to do? He was trying to tell me that he was finding his, his sense of identity in his roots. And he was, he was kind of making a statement because he knew I had come. I'd grown up in California, and I'd just come from Michigan. He's thinking, you're kind of from out of this area. You don't have your roots here. He fit because of his family heritage, and some people find source of meaning in this. It's not about their identity as a person, but their connections to other people in the past or in the present. We seek satisfaction in our connections to others, whether by family line or by friendship. We live in a world where you're not known by who you are, but you are known by who you know. Think about um, Meghan Markle. Now, I don't know Meghan Markle personally, obviously. But really, she didn't have much going for her until she met Prince Harry, right? And once they got married, she became connected to the royal family by marriage. She became a superstar. She became a celebrity. And now, some would argue, well, maybe she had a little bit of celebrity status before that, but nowhere near to the extent that she has become being married to Prince Harry and and being part of the royal family. You know what ironically is happening now? Uh, They want out. They want, they want out of that system of monarchy to pursue their own lives for other things. She achieved that. She connected to the family. And now we got to go find other things to do to find fulfillment and meaning and purpose. You see, some people find their connection in their roots and, and in the connections they have with other people. Secondly, this woman found satisfaction in her religion. We know this from what happened after her Jesus talked about water. She immediately turned her attention from water to worship. I skipped those particular verses because I I didn't want to get into that particular discussion about worship. And it's it's a great section on worship. In fact, this is another key focal point of this text is Jesus explains what true worship is. But she was a devout Samaritan. She was seeking satisfaction in her religious exercises, her her devotion to her particular brand of worship. And the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, first five books, as their holy book. And she was, in essence, trying to convince Jesus that her religion was sufficient for her, was enough. 
You know, I'm good. Have you ever met people like that? You know, you talk to them, you're trying to open up conversation about the Lord. They're kind of like, you know, thanks, but I'm good. I've got my own, you know, belief system. I, I'm doing all right. And that's really what she's kind of saying to Jesus. She's trying to convince Jesus that it was satisfactory. What she believed was satisfactory. Jesus wasn't really going to provide anything better, but alas, he does, doesn't he? He gives us himself. He gives us something far greater than stale, old, dusty exercises which are done but in rote with no heart and no soul. Some people try to find deep satisfaction in their religious exercise. I want to tell you a story. I was in Jerusalem, and our group was going um, from um, the Temple Mount area down the Via Della Rosa and then into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which many people believe is the place where Jesus' tomb was. Um, I like the garden tomb a whole lot better, but I was told by my guide, don't believe it. It's the Holy Sepulchre place. Okay, I'll try not to. So I, I, got, I got separated from the group. If you talk to my wife, she'll tell you this. I'm always taking pictures, always looking for that great shot, that great angle, that unique perspective. And I got some great photographs on that trip. Um, but I got separated from the group, and they had come into the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from the back end. They didn't come through the normal way. And, and they had to go kind of uh, in this back courtyard and then down into this, this back portion of the church and down these little steps and through a little narrow hallway and then to the right and then come into the church that way. I got separated, and on the process, I realized that they had kind of gone ahead. They were about, you know, just, just 100 yards ahead. I started to hurry. I caught my foot on one of the stones in the courtyard and took a fall. And I had a camera with a monopod, and in, in order to save my camera, I went down on my knee and my elbow, and I, I skinned my elbow up and hurt my knee. And so, man, and then, and then my lens hit, hit the ground, and, and, the, and, the, and the filter shattered, and, and the lens cap went all over the place. But fortunately, the camera still works, and uh, I was thankful for that. And this woman, this very kind woman, uh, I think she was from Norway. She came, and she pulled out of her pack a little uh, disinfecting cloth and said, oh, here, you know, wipe it up. I just thought, what an angel from heaven. Thank you so much. So here I am, and I've got my camera. I'm kind of, you know, oh, man, that was a rough fall. I took a pretty heavy fall. And I follow. I know where this group went because I had been on the same, same place. And so I follow where I knew the group went through this little door and then down this little stairwell. And as I get to the stop of the stairwell, I'm hurting. My knee's hurting. My elbow's hurting. I made a fool of myself when I took a fall. You know, you feel kind of embarrassed. And I see this little priest in the priestly garb, you know, coming and racing straight towards me. And I realize I'm up at the top of these stairs, there's, and, and this stairwell is pretty narrow. Maybe like one and a half people can fit down the stairwell. And so I'm going down the stairwell kind of, you know, kind of hurting. I got my monopod. And he comes, and he wants to get by me, and, and I could not twist and turn. And this little priest takes a hold of me. And takes and throws me down the stairs onto the floor of that little back chapel. He got all angry at me because he thought I was trying to prevent him. I just was hurting and I just wasn't enough room and I just couldn't quite turn sideways. So not only did I take a bad fall in the courtyard, but now I had a little Orthodox priest <laughs> throw me to the ground. <laughs> I'm sitting in pain on the ground with my camera and monopod. I pull myself together, I get up. I hit my forehead. I got a lump on my forehead. I come into the back of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Nancy goes, what happened? 
And I told her the story. I said, you won't believe this. I took a fall, almost busted my camera, skinned my knee and my elbow. And, and then this priest threw me to the ground. She says, no way, no way. I said, yes, you would not believe it. Well, you know what? I went on and I stood in a long line because everybody's wanting to do their exercise, their religious devotion. And I come up and turn the corner around where they have this place where you go and step down into the, the tomb, the sepulcher, and guess who's there? The priest who threw me to the ground. And he didn't want to make eye contact with me. And I was trying to make eye contact with him. And I stood and I waited patiently. And then I came up to him. And he was very kind and he was giving communion to people. He was taking donations, you know, with the little. And um, I just said, I forgive you for throwing me to the ground in the back room. I forgive you. And I went down to my thing. But you know what's amazing to me? Here was this guy going through his religious devotion and mistreating people in the back room like me, throwing people to the ground, going through all the motions of churchianity, all of the external, all the external deeds. People thought he probably was the holiest guy there. And I'm like, you don't know what this guy could do. He's small, <laughs> but he's strong. And he can throw you to the ground. Watch out. Right? In his anger, he did this. You know, sometimes I fear that we make our relationship with Jesus kind of like what happened there. This incident was a guy where he was doing the epitome of religious duty at the very tomb of Christ, but his heart toward people and maybe his heart toward God was stony cold. And sometimes I fear, because I know my own heart, that we sometimes view our relationship with Christ as kind of a series of do's and don'ts. And that's what the Bible is. It's just a big book of do's and don'ts. Do these right things. Don't do these wrong things. And we miss the very essence of what Jesus was talking about with this woman. The wellspring of eternal life. We operate with this idea that somehow our relationship with God is transactional. You know, kind of, you scratch my back, God, and I'll scratch your back. I'll do good things for you if you kind of do good things for me. And we kind of have this exchange going. And, and that is so far from the truth. So this woman was trying to find satisfaction in her roots she was trying to find satisfaction in her religion, and she was also trying to find satisfaction in relationships. It doesn't take a Phi Beta Kappa to see that this Samaritan woman had been through a lot of men. Jesus surfaces this when he asked her to bring her husband. Verse 16, bring your husband here. And she answered and says, I, she has no husband. It's a good way to kind of turn away the answer, right? But of course, she didn't know who she was talking to. And Jesus reveals the truth, correct. You have no husband, but you're living with a lover. And by the way, you've been through five husbands. Now, I just want to tell you something. I tend to be a bit more compassionate toward this woman than some commentators have been. Um, it's quite possible that she was widowed more than once. Lifespans were quite short. And uh, in the inbreeding of the Samaritans, or possibly were all kinds of genetic anomalies. Who knows? And also, she could have been divorced. And in that particular day, in that society, a divorced woman was not viewed in any positive terms. And they had very little means of provision. And they were held in very low esteem. And so in verse 27, notice how the disciples, when they came back on the scene, they saw Jesus with this woman. Notice how the disciples said, they came there and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. The woman. And yet no one said, what do you seek? They just kept quiet. 
They didn't want to bring the issue up. So we don't know her whole story. And that's why I'm a bit hesitant to judge her too harshly. But what is clear is that she had made many attempts at finding love and security, all foiled by her own failure and the failure of others, or just the difficulty of life. And so she had given up on marriage altogether and just decided it was better to shack up with somebody. And as a result of this, it brought shame and it brought isolation. You want to see something interesting? It's, it's interesting that when Jesus came to the well, it was the sixth hour, that's about noontime in the Jewish clock, and normally people wouldn't be drawing water at that time. Why? Any idea? It's hot. Where would you draw water? You draw water in the morning and you draw water in the evening. You don't go and draw from a 128-foot well while the sun is beating down on your head. Why was she going at noon? Why did Jesus meet her at noon? Because she wanted to be away from people. She wanted to remain isolated. She wanted to avoid attention and scorn from others in her village. It was at that time of day she was less likely to uh, encounter silent judgment and whispers. You see, she had tried to find satisfaction in relationships with men, and they had all failed. They had proven to be unfulfilling and maybe even deeply hurtful. And so we might as well throw off any semblance of morality and just get the benefits of marriage without the commitment. You know, that's where our society is at. They want all the benefits of marriage without any of the commitment, right? And there are many people today who think that their lives will be complete when they have, are in relationship with that special one person, right? In 10 days, we have this weird holiday called Valentine's Day, St. Valentine, Cupid's love, romance, right? And while I'm, I'm a bit of a romantic at heart, the lie behind the world's celebration is that somehow finding that one right person is going to bring you the satisfaction that you are looking for in your life. And if you are not in a relationship with somebody right now, you're missing out. And you've got to find that one right person. Now, I'm not against relationships. And I'm not against the concept of marriage and the beauty of marriage and the joy of marriage. But I was talking with one of our students here in this, in this body, in this student body. And I was asking him, because uh, he had just gotten married a few months ago, how's, how's married life? And he goes, it's good and it's hard. That's, that's a good description. It's good, and it's hard. Even the desire for sexual satisfaction, as amazing as that can be in a committed Christian marriage, is short-lived. It does not truly satisfy the aching of our hearts. And so this woman sought satisfaction in her roots, her religion, her relationships. And there are many other ways I think that people seek satisfaction today. We could talk about a lot of things, experiences, thrill-seeking. I saw a video. My son, uh, Jonathan, came to our house at Christmas, and he showed us a video. Um, um, it was about a guy who scaled El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without any ropes. What was it called? Free? Free Solo. Thank you. Free Solo. That movie scared the heck out of me because I, I just could not take the scenes. He's up there. He has nothing to. And he gets to the top, and he did it in like two and a half hours and three hours or something like that. He accomplished something that nobody had ever accomplished. And, and they asked him, well, what are you going to do next? And he said, oh, I'm going to go find another mountain to climb. But, you know, experiences, thrill-seeking, travel. I've had the privilege and the opportunity to travel a bit. But, you know, I find that sometimes travel doesn't really scratch the itch. 
Excelling, that's another way people find satisfaction. Maybe you will want to excel at academics or excel at your career. You have a particular skill that you're really good at. And they find, they try to find satisfaction in that. Maybe it's an emotional expression, seeking satisfaction in a wild frenzy of a rock concert or, or some other emotional experience. But like this woman experience, these pursuits leave the soul empty, parched, dried up, looking for more. Whether it be in your roots, your religious experiences, your relationships, whether it be in your experiences sought, the excellence pursued or the emotions expressed after a short while, you will find a deep, achy emptiness in your soul. Jesus said to the woman with precision, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Isn't that what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2.13? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Listen to this, the fountain of living water living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's such a beautiful description of what happens when we try to pursue satisfaction and all these other things. And this woman of Samaria really expresses every person. I think she represents every person. It's a real story. It's not a parable, but I think she represents every person. Every person's search for soul satisfaction. You say, well, that brings us to the second point. There's the search and then there's the source. The source. Jesus starts with the physical, moves to the spiritual. And much of what he did in his teaching was in alignment with this parabolic approach. And notice Jesus' playful use of the analogy in verse 10. He says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is. See, now he's talking about not a what, but a who. You know, we sometimes talk about this in our own evangelical Christianity. We talk about grace, you know, as if it's some commodity that we did, God dispenses. You know, he gives you grace. And, but, you know, I tend to think of grace as a who and not necessarily a what. It's the person of Jesus. He's offering himself to us. He uses this as an analogy. Um, and, and water isn't a living thing, right? I mean, it's got two hydrogen molecules. I'm not a chemist. One oxygen molecule. But, but there's no organic life to water. But you know what? One cannot live without water. You'll die in a few days without water. You can go 40, 50 days without food, but you can't go very long without water. Our lives are short. They're like a vapor, James says. If we want eternal life, we must have living water. This is the analogy that Jesus is, is using, a wellspring, a wellspring that constantly bubbles up. So yesterday, my wife, Nancy, is at Walmart, and I said, I want you to buy the best water you can find there. Has anybody ever had this water? Okay. It's expensive water. They ship this all the way from the island of Fiji. But when you drink this water, when you open it up and you taste it, and you've been drinking Bozeman water, and by the way, I'm sorry, but Bend water is much better than Bozeman water. I have to say that right now. Bend water is much better because it's filtered by the volcanic rock. When you drink this water, I mean, it is the best water. It is good. And you know what? This comes from an artesian well, volcanic island of Fiji. And it's constantly bubbling up. It's constantly there. And Jesus is making this analogy saying, listen, this wellspring is constantly there. It's not something you have to go and draw from. It's, it's bubbling. It's an artesian well. It, it's, it's a spring. It's not, it's not just way down there. It's there permanently. It's this living water. You say, now, the key question in the text is what is the living water, right? Well, in your, in your good application of Bible study methodology, you just turn to John 7. And in John 7, Jesus gives the answer to this, verses 37 through 39. Here's what he says. Now on this day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me 
and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39 is the, is the, is the kicker. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit of God resident within us is this wellspring of living water. Now let's talk about the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit regenerates us, right? So there's the salvific side. He, he makes something new. He brings to life that which is dead. The Spirit is involved in our salvation that way. He communicates. He not only regenerates, He communicates the love and grace of the Father. I've said this before. For all eternity past, the Father has been loving the Son. Oh, Son, I just love you. You are, you are my Son. And the Son has been loving the Father. Father, I love you so much. And the Spirit has been communicating that love. And that's what the Spirit of God does in our life. You have not received, Paul said, a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God and of children heirs also and fellow heirs with Christ. See, the, the Spirit of God communicates to us that we are the children of God. He gives us that assurance, and then the Spirit illuminates, regenerates, communicates, illuminates. It is the Spirit of God that is the wellspring that gives the soul satisfaction in a salvific sense and in the sense of relationship with God. It is the presence of God's Spirit that is the source of soul satisfaction. We have this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, it's talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can I just share something? I'm going to go out on a limb. Sometimes in a place like Montana Bible College, we, ironically, can have a very robust bibliology. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have an unwavering commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. But sometimes what goes along with that robust bibliology is a very weak and diminished pneumatology. We tend to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We're afraid because we see excesses out there. We're like, oh, I don't want to go there. I'm not sure I want to go there. Or I happen to have a different view on the gifts of the Spirit than you have. And therefore, we just kind of stay away from the Spirit. We just don't want to have anything to do with the Spirit. Because, you know, well, we know the Spirit. You know, we know theologically that the Spirit of God is resident within us. But we don't talk about the Spirit much. We don't talk about this wellspring. It is the Spirit that not only regenerates, but communicates and illuminates and assures us that we are the children of God. Christianity without the Holy Spirit is dead orthodoxy. Our souls are thirsty, and without the presence of God's Spirit within us, enlivening us, encouraging us, empowering us, we are dead. And perhaps this is what the psalmist was referring to in the passage I shared, as the deer pants, my soul pants for you, in a dry and weary land. O oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. You see, without the Spirit, we do not have life. You do not have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or self-control. Without the Spirit, you have none of those things. And you, those are important virtues. We can't get those through spiritual self-effort. You can't get those things through pulling your bootstraps up and saying, I just got to try a little harder. Just keep, keep at it, you know, ah. Spiritual self-effort? No, you need the Spirit of God producing in you that which you cannot produce yourself. This is the source of soul satisfaction. And it is the Spirit of God that reminds us that we are the children of God. 
We need that every single day. You know, people talk about being gospel-centered. Being gospel-centered is about being centered on the Spirit. Well, my time has rapidly gone. I want to show you one video. This is, uh, we just had a Super Bowl. I'm not a big football fan, but um, Tom Brady has won, what, like seven or eight Super Bowls? This was an interview with Tom Brady after his third Super Bowl win. 2005. He, he's got a baby face here, okay? New England Patriots quarterback. So I just want to go to that one. See if we can go to that. And can you push the button? Maybe turn off the lights, push the button. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, putting a happy face on, sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night being that. No way. You mean like alone or not alone? <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And... But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Okay. There's got to be more than this after three Super Bowl rings. Now he's got seven or eight. Six. Thanks. All our sports people. Six. Okay. Six. There's got to be more than this. You know, people today are constantly saying that there's got to be more than this. Can I just give you, I've gone way over today, forgive me. Lunch is awaiting. Can I give you some practical applications? How do we pursue true soul satisfaction? Some takeaways. Number one, ask for it. Ask for it, okay? If you knew the gift of God and who is it that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me the water so I will not be thirsty. How about every morning waking up and say, Lord, Satisfy me today with yourself. Satisfy me with yourself, please. Number two, I'm going through quickly. Allow yourself to be fully exposed. Because what Jesus did to this woman is she fully exposed her. She was trying to hide in the shadows, but she, he, he exposed everything about her through and through, and yet still loved her. She goes back and said, this man has told me all the things that I have done. And you know, when you allow yourself to be fully exposed, you bring sin out in the open. And by the way, sin thrives in secrecy. When you get it out in the open and you confess it and you share it and you ask other people to pray for you, you tell and share your, your struggles with your disciple or with your friends. Don't, don't keep this modicum of spirituality by not revealing what you're really struggling with. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's envy, maybe it's lust, maybe it's laziness, maybe it's a lack of passion for Jesus. You just don't care much. You're apathetic. Maybe it's a lack of love for others. 
Maybe it's just plain old selfishness. Whatever it is, bring it out in the open to say, you know, I got to get this out in the open because Jesus exposed her. And when it was exposed, then he could bring the remedy and say, this is what your soul is really longing for. This is what you want. And I can give it to you. And number three, reject the cheap substitutes. We have to constantly be taking stock of ourselves and evaluating our lives and looking to all the ways that we pursue satisfaction, fulfillment, other things. You know, I just heard that Rush Limbaugh, popular radio talk show host, political guy, I don't listen to him. Some people in my family listen to him a lot. And he was just diagnosed with incurable lung cancer. And here's what he said. My job has provided me with the greatest satisfaction and happiness in life. I may respect the job that he's done and how he's able to articulate, communicate so well, but you know what? If you think that a job is going to provide the greatest satisfaction, you're wrong. So reject all that. Put it away. That's not going to satisfy me. That thing that I'm doing, that thing that I'm involved in in private, that thing, that relationship that I'm pursuing that I know really isn't right, it's just not going to satisfy. I need to reject it. So we see the search and we see the source. There was a Samaritan seeking soul satisfaction, and then there is a Savior offering it, living water. Let's pray. Lord, as I've kind of stumbled through this story, I just pray that you would take what is most important and apply it to our hearts by your Spirit. Father, use this to stir us to seek the satisfaction which you and your spirit resident within us can bring to us, to not pursue all the cheap substitutes out there in the world, to not hide our sin or or isolate ourselves in a corner, but to come fully exposed with all of our need and all of our failure and look into the eyes of the Savior who gives us living water as a gift. So, Lord, we ask that you would satisfy us with yourself today. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.